This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks straight from the stages of the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Today we bring you another live talk from All About Women 2018, where writers, thinkers and culture makers came together to discuss the big questions facing women today. American writer and journalist Mandy Lynn Catron brought one of the most profound questions of the day. How exactly do humans fall in love? In a discussion that looks at intimacy, chemistry and vulnerability and gets deep into all of the cultural myths about relationships, Mandy unpacks the science of romantic attraction. The session is chaired by Clementine Ford. How to Fall in Love with Anyone, a memoir and essays, is a book that when I first began reading it, I expected, and was enthusiastic about, expecting it to be um, more of an analytical look at love and relationships, but I found myself incredibly moved while reading this book and wanting to cry in numerous parts. Um, So before we begin, Mandy's just going to do a reading from her book, and then we'll get into the session. All right. I'm going to read um, from what is the very last essay in the book, and um, just sort of thinking about love stories and their role in our culture and our individual lives. Part of what we need from love stories, I think, is to be told what is possible in love. Because stories give us models for how love can look. In their 1995 essay, Knowledge and Memory, The Real Story, Roger Schenck and Robert Abelson argue that all human knowledge is contained in stories. Everything we know and understand is filed away in the index of narratives we carry around in our minds. I've often thought about this as a persuasive argument in favor of a liberal arts education. The more stories you know, the more you can say and do and understand in the world. But quantity itself isn't enough. As Rebecca Solnit points out in her essay, Men Explain Lolita to Me, which you should all read, (laughs) not all stories are good. And the literary canon, for example, is full of texts like Lolita that normalize rape or marginalize characters and voices and points of view that aren't white and male. Art can inflict moral harm, and often does, just as other books do good, Solnit writes. The problem with most conventional love stories is that they fail to expand what we know about love. They limit, they prescribe, and it is very easy to consume the same story over and over as you go about your life without even noticing it. The more stories you consume, I reason, the more scripts you had filed away, then the better your chances of making love fit your needs, rather than making your experiences of love fit into the conventional model, which is something I hadn't had that much success with. I spent years manufacturing romantic scenarios, believing that love would inevitably follow. There was the night in high school when my friend Jared and I pulled into the empty school parking lot turned up the Madonna song on the radio, and danced under the sodium street lights. I'd been so in love with him, something I never bothered to tell him because I was sure he already knew. Everyone knew. And as we danced, I thought, this is it, the beginning of our love story. Because I'd seen the movies made for teenagers like me. I knew about that moment when two friends suddenly realize that they are in love. But our friendship never became a love story. 
As we swayed on the pavement, my head on his shoulder, we were only mimicking romance, trying on conventions to see how they felt. We spent another year or two doing this, practicing the script of love in quiet moments alone, usually while he was dating someone else. Eventually, I figured it out. Trying to enact the script of love isn't enough to generate love. And to force love into the narrow parameters conventional love stories have long prescribed doesn't serve us. But I am more sympathetic toward my younger self than I used to be. Stories matter. They shape our relationship to the world, and sometimes love and the vulnerability it demands is just a little bit easier when you feel there are larger narrative forces at work. And then I'm just skipping ahead. Um, I spent two whole days in my quest to find more interesting love stories, reading Maggie Nelson's book, The Argonauts. I wanted to immerse myself in a queer love story. The book isn't long, but it's dense. I told my partner Mark about one of the first scenes in which Nelson sends her partner, the gender-fluid artist Harry Dodge, a passage from Roland Barthes in which Bart compares a lover saying, I love you, to the Argonauts repairing their ship. Though the Argo's parts are slowly replaced throughout the voyage, it is still the Argo. Likewise, each I love you has the same form, though its meaning is renewed with each use. Bart says, the very task of love and of language is to give to one and the same phrase inflections which will be forever new. Mark and I looked up the passage in Roland Barthes by Roland Barthes, a frequent image that of the ship Argo, luminous and white, each piece of which the Argonauts gradually replaced so that they ended with an entirely new ship without having to alter either its name or its form. As we sat on the floor with the dog, we tried to catalog the ways we use I love you with others and ourselves. Sometimes you say I love you when I am annoyed, I tell him. And sometimes we say it as a kind of ritual. When we go to sleep at night, he asks, do you want to talk about anything else? Before putting in his earplugs, and then when we settle under the covers, he says, I love you. And I say, I love you too. And he says, no, for real. And I say, yes, for real. I tell him that sometimes I say I love you because it is an exclamation that I need to get out of my body. Mark says that when I'm frustrated, his I love you means it's okay for me to be frustrated. A reminder that my feelings are situational and temporary. And because I love you even when you are annoyed and I want you to know, he adds, I look away, embarrassed by how this pleases me. All the I love yous come from the same place, he says. But they are different, and we should acknowledge that difference, I say. I guess Bart would have it that every I love you both is and is not the same vessel. Mark and I agree that the vessel the Argo and the vessel I love you have some things in common, not just nomination and substitution, as Bart points out, but also direction, utility, the capacity to carry us somewhere or nowhere. Each is a human construction made meaningful by the human intention it bears. I say that sometimes I text my mom, I love you, because I miss her, and because I know it pleases her to hear it. 
and I tell the dog I love him because his gait on the sidewalk or the way he rips out the fresh grass with an enthusiastic, focused gnashing of his teeth pulls the phrase out of my mouth before I even realize I am speaking. My ex's I love you's always landed softly despite their weight because he was someone who bothered to say exactly what he meant. No, I love you between us was ever offered out of a sense of obligation. I was grateful for this, though maturity has taught me that even obligation can be a form of love. As we re review love's connotations, its inflections, I am mesmerized by its sheer capaciousness. Romantic love is capacious, and I mean that not in the mystical sense. It cannot contain anything or everything, and it is never without conditions. But rather, it is capacious in the daily way that any expression of love might also express trust, doubt, regret, resignation, humor, self-congratulation, or sacrifice. Love can contain all of this, but love stories rarely do. And I'll stop there. Thank you for that reading. Yeah, let's chat. Uh, yeah, let's chat. I mean, there's so many things that this book raised for me, and one of them was one of them was the sort of like depressing irony of the fact that even though romantic love shows us that it can fail. Well, there's an interesting concept in that as well, the, the concept of failure in romantic yeah. love. But it, that it can end over and over and we seek certain things from it that are not necessarily organic, but things that we've been told that we ought to have in our lives and romantic love being one of the leading ones of that. But there's so many different forms of love that are just as fulfilling, if not more so, but lack that kind of cultural significance yeah. of the romantic love. In your work exploring love stories, what, have, what conclusions have you drawn about that? You know, I think I went into the process of writing this book, which was like a years-long process. Like, I, I just spent years thinking about it, and I think that was for a variety of reasons. Number one, it's like an incredibly big subject, and I just kept coming across new research. Um, number two, I was like living out the research in my own love life as it was happening. Um, you know, I think I, I started writing this book with the idea that love stories weren't serving me very well. You know, I was partly inspired to write it by my parents' divorce when I was 26, um, and I just didn't no, like I had no idea that there was anything about their marriage that was like less than ideal. And so when they sat my sister and I down and said, we are getting a divorce, we just don't love each other the way we used to, I was really shocked. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand why. You know, I had this notion that like divorce affects like young children. But like, I'm an adult, I live 3,000 miles away from them, like I should be fine. But I felt this enormous grief. And really more than probably I've grieved anything in my adult life um, was the grief I felt at the, loss, at the end of their marriage. Um, which really to me felt like I was losing my family. And, and luckily, you know, I learned that that wasn't the case, that was, wasn't what was happening. Um, but I, 
I realized how much of my ideas about romantic love were tied up in their love story. And divorce very much felt like the wrong ending to that story. And I started thinking about love stories in general. And it just occurred to me one day, like, what if most of what I think I know about love is actually wrong? Yeah, <laughs> it's just no good. Um, and so I think because I teach first-year university students how to write research papers, and I'm always saying to them, like, you can write a research paper about anything, like academics um, investigate anything. No subject is too trivial or too small. I was like, I should get some data on love. Like, I should see what's out there. And I just wanted something that was kind of like the opposite of, of um, these narratives from popular culture. And, you know, I think I set out to figure out well, like, okay, if my parents, who are really good people, who are kind to one another, who have always made sacrifices for each other, um, and have done everything exactly the way that the culture has told them they're supposed to, if they can't stay married, then, like, who can? And so I think I wanted to understand, like, how to make love last. And I came away from the book... And once I finally finished writing it, I don't know, like eight years later, um, realizing that that was actually not a very interesting question. Like, the more interesting question is, like, what are the various roles that love can have in our lives? Like, what can love look like? What's possible in love? And what I sort of under began to understand, and I'm still sort of thinking this through in lots of ways, is that romantic love is not this like exclusive thing that's up on this pedestal and separate from every other kind of love. Like in fact, most of the research that you find about romantic love is, is applicable to many other relationships. And like if you try to define what romantic love is, and you could do this through various disciplines, like biologists will define it specifically by like neurochemically what's happening in your brain. Um, or psychologists will define it differently, you know, but you can look at all these different disciplines. Like some psychologists, for example, would say, well, well love is just a social construction, right? It's something that's created by the culture. Um, but really, what you find is like, it's almost impossible to define, is like distinct from other forms of love. Like you could say, okay, well, romantic love, you like you feel intimate with someone, you really want to be with them, um, also you want to have sex with them, but actually there are models of, like there are people who are asexual who still experience romantic love. Um, and there's also the reverse, right? There are people who are aromantic who enjoy sexual relationships. And so once you start thinking about, like, well, what is love? The reality is, like, it's really hard to define. And it, you know, this, the stories that are interesting to me now are not stories about how two people meet and fall in love and get married, but they're stories about how one kind of love brings something to bear in another kind of love. Like, I don't know if you guys have read Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, Anyone read that? You won't be asked to deliver a book report on it, <laughs> but show of hands. Anybody? Oh, yeah, some people. It's, it's a terribly poorly read audience, Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> they can't possibly be if they're here. Um, it's so good. You should all go buy it. 
Um, but it's really fantastic. And one of the things that I love about it is that it's about her relationship with her partner, but it's also about their process of like becoming parents and her notion of motherhood, which like she she really comes to the conclusion that like you can't separate maternal love from like erotic love and familial love and like that all these things just like overlap each other in really interesting ways. And to me, like thinking about how that works, like that is really way more interesting than saying like, okay, I've got to get married. It needs to last until we both die. Like what's the secret? So. Um, there's about 10 different threads I can take from that, <laughs> but I've opened up uh, I wanted to just read a, a very short snippet, and it follows on actually from your what you touched on about that that need that we have or that we feel that we have to have a good story yeah. about the way that we met. And you're writing about um, so the the beginning of the book opens with Mandy discussing ending her ten year relationship with her really your first adult yeah. partner. Um, they met in college, and then they went out for 10 years, lived together, and then they get to this point where the relationship, nothing's happened really significant to end the relationship. There's not been infidelity or, a, you know, uh, there's, there's no moment other than them both thinking, is this something that we really should continue with? Um, personally, I hated Kevin. Um, most... <laughs> it's all right, I've already said that to Mandy. Most properly exemplified by the fact that when she f meets him again after he comes back from a year's exchange in, in Germany, one of the descriptions that Mandy has about him is that he drops German words into the conversation with her <laughs> and waits for her to intuit their meaning. <laughs> we've all loved someone like that. <laughs> and we've all felt dirty about it afterwards. <laughs> but there's this part where you say, at 20, I wanted a love story almost as much as I wanted love itself. I didn't have a script to make sense of those first few months with Kevin, but over time I learned how to edit out the doubt and ambiguity and shape our lives into a classic girl-meets-boy story, a variation on the familiar form, giving myself some of the agency I wished I'd had. Maybe I accepted less than what I wanted, from Kevin and from love, because he offered enough to tell a good story. And for a few years, having a good love story felt a lot like having good love. That, I read that and I was like... <laughs> Oh! <laughs> and even just reading it out again now, I get chills and want to cry because it feels so real and something that I hadn't thought a lot about in terms of the, my own myth-making and myth-building around love. And I want to bring that back to the way that you kind of mythologise your parents' love and how this informs your expectations of love later on and, and the kind of the, the damage that we can wreak upon ourselves when we make the mistake of taking something that from the outside makes us feel a certain way and yeah. wanting to replicate it in our own lives. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to this idea of scripts, right? So, like, you could think about romantic love as coming with this set of social scripts for the role of love in our lives, and there's, like, this microscript, which is like what you do and do not say on a first date. And then there's like a macroscript, which is basically, you know, this, the trajectory of a life and the role of love in that life. And that's like, you know, you meet someone, you develop an exclusive relationship at a certain point, um, maybe you move in together, then you get married, buy a house, have children. And there's this really sort of narrow 
script, narrative, what I would call like the love, marriage, baby carriage narrative <laughs> for how love should go, what it should look like in our lives. And um, I think we all absorb that narrative without noticing that we're doing it. And for me, that was embodied by my parents' love story. And so without realizing it, I was, I was perpetuating all of these ideas through this story. And, and my parents' love story is like the story that I would tell basically anyone who would listen, because I thought it was like the greatest story ever. And I'll just tell you guys, because you have to listen. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is uh, that they met when my dad was hired to be the new football coach at my mom's high school. And it was like in the middle of nowhere, rural Virginia. He actually was part of this program that uh, forgave his student loans if he went to like uh, uh, one of the most impoverished parts of the state, which happened to be where my mother grew up, which was like the coal mining region of Virginia. Um, and... My mom was a high school cheerleader, and she was the uh, editor of her school newspaper. So she had to go interview this new football coach uh, for the paper. And her best friend, who was also working at the paper, said, you know, I hear he's a real asshole. And I always loved that detail because, actually, that asshole was like her future husband. Um, but also because my dad is like a, a really warm, loving guy that everyone just adores. So, you know, there was this sense that, like, that there were these larger forces at work bringing these two people together. Um, my mom set my dad up. So my mom was the seventh of eight kids, and she, she and my dad became friends, and she set him up on a date with her sister, who was number six. And, um, and they went out on one date. It was like a disaster. Um, the, the family myth is that the two of them went to the one restaurant in town. They had their, their food was brought out to them, and neither one of them had enough money for, to pay for it. And the way my aunt tells it, my dad just left. He just, like, left her sitting at the table, which I think is incredibly unlikely, because, like I said, my dad's a pretty good guy. Um, however, eventually, my aunt started dating my dad's best friend, another football coach, and my mom started secretly dating my dad because he was a faculty member and she was a student, and the four of them got married in a double wedding. <laughs> I know, right? See, you guys love it. Like in the basement of the Baptist church, and... Just like the end of Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Basically, Yes. And so I just, I just loved this story. And one of the things that I had to do in the process of writing the book that I wanted to do but was slightly terrified of doing was like really go back and investigate this story and sort of understand it with more complexity from the point of view of an adult. Um, and that really was deeply uncomfortable, I think, because it was hard talking to my parents about their divorce, which was something that, that was so painful for everyone um, that it was always difficult to talk about. And then I think I never fully understand, understood all the reasons they got divorced and sort of came to believe that actually maybe they didn't fully understand the reasons either. Um, but, you know, I also had to reckon with, like, the fact that my dad, as a member of the faculty, was dating a student. And, like, you know, 
for years, my mom was like, oh, it was the 70s. You know, like that's what people did in the 70s. And I don't think she was wrong, but I also think like that looks really different now. And so it really required me just to like take this huge myth that was really like so foundational to my identity and how I understood who I was in the world and like totally dismantle it, which is like I think a really uncomfortable thing to do, but also really liberating because suddenly I was like, well, you know, if they couldn't make this marriage work the way they wanted it to and they're happier outside of it, which they really are, they're quite happy now, they seem to be living like their best lives post-divorce, which I think is fantastic. Um, you know, maybe I don't now have to have a relationship that looks like theirs. Like maybe there are more possibilities for me for what love can look like. And so, you know, in the end, I think that was a fruitful thing to do, if really hard. I related really strongly to it because I had that exact same experience of mythologizing my parents' relationship growing up. And, and for any um, people in the room whose parents weren't divorced, there's sort of like almost like this weird smugness about it, you know? Yes. Like, well, my parents really love each other. And uh -huh. it's, um, I mean... It's, that's a really fucked up way to feel. Yeah, but, um, yeah, but I didn't realize, like, my, we all felt that way, like my mom, my dad, my sister, yeah. and me, without knowing it. But we're sort of, like, self-satisfied like just, and, and elitist. We're really good at love enough. Yeah, like, we did it right, yeah. and everyone else kind of failed. But, but on, you know, in a negative way, and there's lots of negatives around that, but when you are subject to mythologizing the most formative kind of relationship that you have to observe day in and day out, when, of course, you can't know the intricacies of it and you can't know yeah. what's wrong. I mean, um, I had to reckon with it when, after my mum died and my dad remarried, and I still find now that I have dreams where my mum's suddenly alive again, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with her. Oh, God. Yeah. And I'm only saying that because I think that that, um, that in combination with the messages that girls in particular get from the outside world about the importance of romantic love in our life, the importance of finding, and in a very heteronormative way as well, the importance of finding a man not to love you, but to choose you. Yeah, being chosen. Being chosen while you, you know, you write about um, when you're first forming a relationship with Kevin, and Kevin was this person who you saw as, as going out and doing interesting things in order to make himself interesting, and you would become interesting... <laughs> You would become interesting by virtue of the fact that he'd chosen you. An yeah, by being man loved by an interesting you. man. Yeah. And I, th I think that that sort of... Um, that pursuit of romantic love is in some ways a human kind of desire, but obviously very different in terms of how it's packaged to girls and boys. And you yeah, have a, a really different. excellent chapter in here about Cinderella and the Cinderella story and how it's like re repeated throughout... Um, romantic retellings of stories. And you talk about the movie Pretty Woman, which, of course, is a classic Cinderella tale. Yeah. And how, um, you know, the, the difficulties that you have to wrestle with in, in that Julia Roberts was 22 years old when she played opposite Richard Gere's 40-year-old saviour. Um, and also the fact that... Some of you may remember a few years ago there was a Q&A episode where... Um, Mia Friedman discussed how no one would want their daughter to grow up to be a sex worker, which of course created, you know, a lot of backlash because um, 
you know, without going too much into it, sex workers work, what's the difference between wanting your daughter to grow up to be financially and economically independent and wanting them, wanting something else for them? But you, you reference in here that um, people don't assume that watching movies will make a girl become a sex worker as in, in terms of pretty woman, but they don't question the fact that watching repeated examples of a woman learning to make herself be chosen and, and aspire to nothing more than that, the negativities in that. Yeah, it's like we worry so much about how these narratives of like, yeah, you know, it was like my sister. So my sister and I w would watch Pretty Woman when we were six and 10. And I opened that essay with a, with a description of my sister. Um, we're in the car and she's playing with her Barbies and she's like, Mandy, guess what Barbie's job is? And Barbie's standing here and like Ken walks up to her and Ken gives Barbie money and then Ken leaves and then, <laughs> and then Skipper walks up and Skipper gives Barbie money and then Skipper leaves. And I'm like, I don't know, what's Barbie's job? And she's like, she's a hooker. <laughs> and it was so, you know, it's a funny story, but there, you know, it was interesting to me in that moment, like as I look back on it as an adult, my sister watched Pretty Woman as a six-year-old and was like, oh, she's a businesswoman. And I was like- Which she was. Yeah, but I was like, oh, she's a princess. You know, <laughs> like I was like, here she is being, being chosen by this powerful man and getting to wear these beautiful dresses. And, you know, I think Casey's version of that story is really a much healthier, notion, right? Um, and, you know, we worry so much about how these, like, so my sister, when she would play dress up, would, she had my aunt, the one I just told you about, was like uh, on the marching band in high school, and she had these um, black patent leather boots that my sister would wear, and they would come up to here on my sister. They were part of our, like, dress up outfit. So she would put these on, and she would walk around the house, and she would be dressed up as Vivian from Pretty Woman. And, you know, I think we have this idea that, like, oh, my God, like, these little girls watching these movies, they're going to just, like, totally ruin them. But the reality is actually the movies that we give little girls to watch, which are, like, Cinderella and um, Sleeping Beauty, which, like, if you want to talk about the most passive <laughs> protagonist in all of, of romantic history... Um, like, these actually, I think, are the more destructive narratives than a woman who is a sex worker who, in fact, like, finds a lot of agency and gets herself out of, like, a really precarious position, and admittedly into another slightly precarious position. <laughs> well, you had a better alternative ending for it, which was that she thanked him very much for the week but then went to school. Yeah. <laughs> that she was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to become a... a um, a social worker, and, and take care of her friends who were also sex workers suffering from like really abusive behavior. Yeah, I mean, it's a, such a good movie, despite being incredibly problematic. I was like expecting to hate watch it as an adult, but I was like, this movie is, like Julia Roberts is so delightful. She's so entertaining. Um, and so what I, I wanted to imagine like a better ending for her. Than Richard Gere. Than Richard Gere. Than old Richard Gere. Um, but it leads to the interesting question of, uh, in the book you talk about not just your mother's relationship with your father, but also your grandmother's relationship and, and her husband and how... Um, so, in brief, Mamor. Yeah, Mamor. Mamor was 15 years old when she married uh, Papa, yeah. who was 30 years old. 
Um, they first met when she was 13, and the, obviously now, and in a similar way to the high school cheerleader and the football coach, of course we bristle at that and say yeah. that, that, is, that is an unacceptable state of affairs. Mm-hmm. And yet the choices, and your, your grandmother maintained, has maintained throughout her whole life that she was deeply in love with your grandfather, and the choices that she made to get herself into that situation liberated her from a much worse situation for her own um, autonomy. Yeah, like, so she was the daughter of a coal miner, and her mother died of cancer when she was 11. And so she dropped out of school to basically raise her two-year-old brother and run the house and um, cook all the food and take care of her her father. And um, then her dad got remarried when she was 13. And the woman he remarried didn't want to resume the duties of of running the house. And, And my grandmother continued to do this as like a 13-year-old and she she was really bitter about it so she ran away from home and um and and was basically homeless like she went to another coal mining community down the road and lived with family and had no financial resources at all so she was like knocking on doors asking people if she could do their laundry or clean their house as a way to make money and so when she looks out the window one day and sees this handsome soldier walking down the street. She does what any enterprising 13-year-old girl would do. She (laughs) decides to go fill up the water bucket. And so she walks out and she tells this as like this beautiful romantic story, um, which is is her meeting my grandfather. And she describes, um, this is like my favorite detail of the story. She describes that when he smiled, his, his teeth would sparkle because he had a gold tooth. <laughs> and she's like, that tooth shine like new money. Which, I, <laughs> which is just like the most delightful detail. Um, <laughs> and... Um, you know, very, like, Prince Charming, right? And so, you know, she, she tells the story as if it's these two people sort of finding each other, and he's so handsome, and he's a soldier, and then he, he was just on leave, so he, they spent, like, an evening talking, and then he went back to the war and came back two years later, and they got married. And, um, you know, she characterizes it as this great romance. And when I talk to my mother and her sisters about it, they tell a very different version of the same story, which is that, you know, my mom will say, well, I think mom needed help. And um, my dad felt sorry for her and knew that he could take care of her. And so she characterizes it as very pragmatic, right? Like, here's a man who's 31, he's home from the war, he, it is time for him to go back into the coal mines and start a family, and there aren't that many people available to do that with in this tiny little community, and so my grandmother is single, she needs a place to live, she needs someone to take care of her, and so really she went from cleaning other people's homes to cleaning her own home and raising her eight children, and so one of the things that I, that I sort of thought when I started interviewing her was that because she felt so devoted to my grandfather, and he died when I was four, and I, and I was interviewing her, you know, like 25 years after that, and she would tell it like, she, 
like he's the love of her life. And my grandmother, <laughs> men like love my grandmother and she'll be like the first person to tell you this. Um, but there are always men following her around and they, they like want to take her out to dinner and they want to be her close friend, but she never remarried and I always wanted to understand why. And I always thought the reason that she didn't remarry was because she loved my grandfather so much because that's how she tells the story. But what I found talking to her is that actually she was living off of his pension, his military pension, and if she remarried, she would have to give that up. And after he died, you know, she's not raising any children. She's only responsible for herself. Like, she's finally living a really independent... Her best life. Yeah, her best life. And men come court her, they come visit her, but she like was not willing to give up that autonomy. And to me, like that's a more interesting story, right? It's not about like her being so devoted to my grandfather. It's really about her, even if she wouldn't characterize it this way, being devoted to herself, which I think is like a much better way to be. Some of my favorite parts of the book are later on when your, your breakup with Kevin is finalized and you, <laughs> <laughs> of course, hated that guy. Um, <laughs> no, but you talk about learning to be alone again. You talk yeah. about, you know, having having a cup of, and in Australia we call it coriander, not cilantro, but having a cup oh, yeah. of coriander on the windowsill because Kevin hated coriander, so you could never eat it. But then I remember, yeah, that moment of buying yeah. it at the grocery store. I was like, I'm my own woman. Yeah, but then asking asking yourself... Well, am I eating coriander because I like it, or am I eating it just because now I can have it? Yeah. And so all of these questions that you kind of... The process that you take in, in leaving a state of romantic love, the process you take in learning how to fall in love with your, um, yourself and your singledom again and your yeah. autonomy. And um, you also later on talk about wrestling with the decision to move in with your current partner, now Mark. And I have to admit there was a part of me that was like, don't do it. <laughs> not because not because I doubt the way that you write about your relationship. Yeah. Because I think that politically there is a moment when you... Um, and I'm speaking as a 36-year-old woman who had all of these, like, ideas about, you know, and notions about romantic love and the, the importance of securing the love of someone, whether it were man or woman, just someone who would choose me when I was in my 20s and very, ideal, you know, idealised these sorts of things. But now I think... As, as happy as I am with my partner and my child, there's a part of me that was so envious of reading your experience of being able to live alone again and, and have that space to yourself. And I think that this is something that women especially wrestle with, particularly if they're in heterosexual mm -hmm. pairings. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, there's this um, notion that we have in our culture that single people are, like, somehow... Um, not achieving their 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 best life, or or that they're somehow damaged, inevitably lonely and and damaged, and that they're single because there's something deficient about them. And I really internalized this narrative, and I think that's partly why it took me so long to get out of that relationship with Kevin. I just was like, well, who will I be without him to define me? And what I found, you know, that breakup was really hard. It was painful. Um, but it also, it was amazing. Like, being single was so good. And I was like, I'm in charge of my time. 
I decide what to eat for dinner. I decide what time to go to bed. I decide what to what time to get up. And these are like such trivial things, but that I had never, because he and I had been together for so long, I had just never made these decisions all by myself, for myself. And it was glorious. And I was really worried about losing that when I moved in with Mark. And so we worked really hard to kind of like talk through a lot of this stuff and make sure that we... We negotiated. We actually wrote a contract. Um, we did. I think everybody. I think it sounds like a great like idea. The greatest idea. So we sat down and went like point for point, everything from like who does what chores around the house to like okay, we're we're going to be monogamous. We prioritize sex as a part of our relationship. To um, how long guests can stay over and <laughs> to whether or not we want to have kids. And so. Just having an occasion to sit down and talk about everything, sort of large and small, um, ideological and very pragmatic, and saying, okay, we're going to do this for... The first contract was for six months, and the second one was for a year. Um, and, and that, like, we do not assume that what our relationship looks like today is what it should look like next year or in five years or ten years, and we want to make space for us to change. And so, you know, I had things in there like, we will not assume that we will spend the weekend together. You know, just like stuff, because I, that sort of thing had been so restrictive for me in my last relationship. And I was so afraid to just like speak up and say, here's what I want in this relationship. And so it was nice now that we have an occasion to really do that regularly so that I feel like I can, I can, say my desires, like I can name them, which was like terrifying the first time I had to do that. Um, and that and that they're going to be heard and also vice versa. Right. And so that that to me is like a really nice way to live, mm. I think. Yeah, I think that um, re kind of like teaching yourself out of that conditioning, um, particularly growing up as a girl underneath the banner of all of these romantic sort of fairy tales where you are the passive character who just sits there waiting, waiting to win the man at the end or waiting for the man to win you. That learning of how to actually speak up and ask for what you want is incredibly important because yeah. you say it um, you know, early on in the book that you, you were desperate as an adolescent to be noticed by boys and you went about that by trying to make yourself as unnoticeable as possible. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, that yeah. kind of, like, impulse that we have to, like, not have opinions. Um, or, well, I should say not the impulse that we have to not have opinions, but the, the l cultural learnings that are there that say, you know, boys won't like you if you're too smart. Um, mm -hmm. Which is something I was told by my best friend's mother. Yeah. Which I was, like, a 12-year-old. She said, you, oh, Mandy, you don't have a boyfriend because you're so smart. So it's like such a messed up thing yeah. to say to a 12-year-old. Anyway. So learning to kind of speak up and ask for what you want is a process in itself. Um, but I'm also interested in the challenges that, you know, we've talked largely about heterosexual pairings up to now, but you also write about um, a couple that you met, that you're friends with, Steve and Joey, who Joey's from Indonesia, and they, they met 10 years Prior and just before the challenges that gay couples, especially for yeah. asserting and uh, having love recognized, that this terrible story where Joey's months out from getting his his um, American citizenship confirmed and his company makes him redundant, and they beg him, they beg the company 
CEO to just extend his contract for a few months and he's made millions for this company because if he can still remain working there with the company that sponsored him for the next few months, then he'll finally have his citizenship and the company refuses. Yeah. And so he has to move back to Indonesia where he is closeted and away from his partner because gay marriage is, is not yet legal in America at this point. And what they ended up doing was moving to Canada, to Vancouver. It's basically like refugees. And um, it was really interesting to talk to them and, and hear about their love story and think about the narratives that, the sort of narratives we have for heterosexual relationships, where and how those intersect with narratives for queer relationships, where they don't, um, how, you know, and this is one of the things, I guess the, the sort of important or most interesting thing about this to me is like, you know, we use this, like, hashtag love is love when it comes to, um, like, the movement for um, same-sex marriage. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with the hashtag. Like, I think the sentiment behind it is really good. I've used it myself lots of times. But the reality is that, actually, queer relationships are different. And the difference is not in the quality of the love. The difference is in the social context, right? So that we have different... People in queer relationships have different social expectations, different pressures. Um, it just means different things within different communities to experience love. And love is inflected by our identities, right? Like love is inflected by race. Love is inflected by ability or disability, love is inflected by religion. And, you know, I think when you say, well, love is love, we sort of smooth that over and say, I don't want to talk about those differences. But I think that sometimes means that we don't talk about the way in which our culture celebrates some kind of loves over other kinds of love, right? And so it's like, okay, now if queer love looks like heterosexual love, if it looks like two people who go to the courthouse or go to the church and they get married and they commit to each other and they're monogamous and they have children, then we're good with it. But what if it doesn't look like that? Like, that's still love, you know? Yeah, you, um, um, you talk about that ad that maybe some of you saw when it was going around, the, uh, the giant X-ray screen and behind it with two skeletons yeah. dancing. And then these two people come out and it's two women and everyone's like, oh, wow. Oh, my God, I can't believe it's two women. Um, and I just want to kind of just con confirm and, and reaffirm what you've just said. Because the ad sort of says love has no gender and then, it, and then it's an interracial couple. Love has no race, love has no religion, love has no disabilities. And you say, when it comes to love, I'm no longer interested in, um, in annihilating differences. I want to engage with alternative love stories without co-opting them, without heteronormalizing, and without saying, here's what we straight, monogamous, cisgender, able-bodied people have to learn from them. Even though I do think there is a lot to learn, love may not have a gender, a race, a religion, um, or a disability, but people who, lo who love have all of those things, and I'm interested in how these things inflect love. I want to resist the impulse, however well-intended, to universalize. Um, and I think that that is, you know, relevant in that we've just had this amazing moment in Australia where, you know, the parliament, after so much sort of faffing around, finally <laughs> just did what is right and extended the, the same rights for marriage to all people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, apart from, apart from all of the hate that that vote and the presence of that vote threw up, there are people and queer people in the community who are conscious of how it 
it creates and, and um, celebrates a conservative idea of love, that mm -hmm. for love to be considered real and solidified, it, it ends in marriage. Yeah, yeah, totally. The, um, there's a word called amato-normativity, which is like one of the, my favorite things that I came across in this research, which is coined by this philosopher, Elizabeth Brake, and it's basically the notion that the ideal version of love that everybody is implicitly striving for is like long-term, monogamous, marriage-minded, committed love. And the result of a motto normativity is that we stigmatize being single, we stigmatize short-term love, we stigmatize non-monogamous love, um, but there are all these modes of practicing love that we kind of push to the margins or invalidate because we focus on this very normative notion of romantic love. And one of the problematic side effects of the campaign for same-sex marriage is that it now sort of pushes queer love into this same really normative trajectory. And um, yeah, I have complicated feelings about that. I think it's anybody who wants to get married should be able to, and yet anybody who doesn't want to get married should be able to do that too, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel the same, you know, as a, as a queer person who's also not really super into marriage. Of course I celebrate the decision. Yeah. But I, I, I find it difficult to reconcile, reconcile my feelings about that with the fact that I would love all marriage to be abolished. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't think that marriage is actually a good state for a lot of people. I, don't, I especially don't think that in heterosexual pairings that marriage is a particularly good state for women. I think that yeah. it can be. But I think that the, there are lots of questions to be asked about that and this sort of assumption that, that love becomes more important when it ends in marriage. Or yeah, that it's, it's more legit. It's, it, yeah, it's no, recognised by the state. Yeah. You know, is, is, um, you know, is, is as, as silly as saying that love becomes or families become more important when two people have a child together as opposed mm -hmm. to choosing not to have children. Um, we've only got about... Nine minutes left, though, oh, so yeah, I'm just going to open, open it up to the floor. If anyone has a question, please make your way down to the microphones just on the left and right of the stage. Um, again, try and keep it to a short question with a point. Um, and don't be shy. While people are walking down, I just want to add one thing to your point about marriage-serving women. Like, I think the reason that we see, like shelves full of bridal magazines at like bookstores and airports and there are no shelves of groom magazines is because like the culture is working really hard to sell the notion of marriage as, as validating to women because goal. because otherwise if we if women step back and look at the amount of work that they do in marriage the emotional labor the physical labor like a lot of women would be like mm, this might not be that fun. <laughs> it doesn't look that good for me. It makes me. zero sense to me, honestly. I think that there are, there are obviously circumstances where you can have an equal partnership. Yeah, um, totally. But I think it's really, really hard to fight off the cultural conditioning that we have. And I also object to the idea that somehow a, all of a woman's achievements fall short if she hasn't found a man to choose her and love her and impregnate her. Yeah. I mean, and the best example I can think of that is poor old Jennifer Aniston. Poor old Jennifer who, Aniston. For the last, like the poster child. For, for the last 15 years, she's had to deal with people talking about how like depressed and barren she is. 
um, how she's obviously mourning constantly the loss of her relationship to Brad Pitt. Yes. And now that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie have separated, all these tabloid magazines are throwing them back together. And par- As opposed in- to saying, oh, maybe Brad Pitt wasn't that good of a Maybe host. he was like a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, who, by the way, did not stop working with Harvey Weinstein, despite the fact that he knew that both of his significant relationships had... Uh, the women in them had been attacked by him. Um, but, yeah, like, the, like three magazines this week have them married in Hawaii and a baby on the way. I know. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just absurd, but this is the narrative that women are being taught to aspire to. Is there a question down there? I have to apologise about the super heteronormative version of this question that's about to come. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I have to notice that in a lot of my conversations recently, um, we've been talking about, my girlfriends and I have been talking about how potentially the way that women talk to women about sex and love is incredibly different to the way that men talk to men about sex and love. And the fact of that might be framing the way we behave just by the linguistic differences. Um, and I was wondering if you might speak to that. And from what I understand from my friends in the queer community, it can be a really different conversation just because frequently the things that, for example, my lesbian friends ask their partners for are more relatable and understandable from their own gender. And I'm, I'm curious just to see if you've thought about that. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, because I am not that privy to many man-to-man conversations about love... Um, I don't know if I can speak to those directly, but I can say that I do see a difference between um, how straight people talk to one another about love and how queer people talk to each other about love, both within relationships and with their peers. Um, I think the language is really powerful and it's really difficult to think around it. Like I, One of the things that I really critique in the book is this notion of deservingness. Like we're always talking about what someone deserves. And I find that straight women talk about this a lot, which is like, oh, you deserve better than that. And, um, and it's not that that isn't true. It's just that actually probably everyone deserves love, even like not very good people. You know, like we all really benefit from being loved generously. And... Um, and everybody's worthy of love. But so, so often our discourse about love is, you know, you deserve this and you deserve that. And, and we don't often, you know, stop and think like, well, what does it suggest when I say that, that you deserve to be happy or you deserve to find the right person or a good man? It also sort of implicitly suggests that like some people deserve love more than others, which is like a really uncomfortable idea. And yet, as much as I critique this, I find myself using that same language. Like I find it's really hard to separate ourselves from these ideas of love. You know, it's like, I like to imagine that love is something that is, while it is very much a biological experience, is also something I'm choosing to do, right? Like, I like this notion of thinking of love as a verb. It's something that we, that I get to offer myself with generosity to another person. That's love. And yet, I still talk about falling in love, right? Like, I still use that language, even though I recognize that that language implies this real passivity and lack of agency in love. So I think it's good to be really conscious of the ways that we talk about love, and yet, I acknowledge that like it takes like constant practice, even even when sort of intellectually, you can critique this language, 
it's so baked into our culture, and language so much shapes the way that we think, that like you have to work really hard to find new language, to separate yourself from it. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to know what your thoughts on love around the digital age and using Tinder and Bumble and all of that kind of thing and people becoming a little bit disposable in terms of using dating apps and that kind of thing. Yeah, so um, I'll try to keep this short, but basically I think the beauty of online dating and dating apps is that we now have access to more partners than we've ever had. Um, in human history, right? And when you have more access, then you have much likelier, much higher likelihood of choosing a good partner. And you have a lot more agency, you have a lot more choice, which I think especially for women can be incredibly empowering. Um, but the flip side of that is that with more choice comes more superficial interactions with people and uh, decreased sense of accountability, right? So like if, if you're going on a date with like your, the, the guy who like works at the bank with your aunt um, and he ghosts you, that's gonna be weird, right? Like <laughs> he's gonna have to show up to work and be like, oh yeah, I just didn't show up to that date that you set up for me. Um, but if it's somebody on Tinder and you have a, a date set up and you never, like show up to the bar and they never show up and you never hear from them again, um, that's normal, right? So we lose this sense of accountability and, you know, obligation to each other, right? Like all the ethics that come with um, personal interactions become a lot looser. And so I think um, the result is that it, online dating can be incredibly frustrating. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for abuse. Um, verbal abuse, or even just like unwanted dick pics, which also counts as abuse. Um, How did you guys meet? Well, <laughs> I fell in love with him when I saw his. <laughs> he sent me a picture of his penis, and I was like, let's I was just go like, dinner. whoa, that is so original. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, it's a trade-off. And I think, on the whole, we benefit from the trade-off, but you have to really work the system and it can be exhausting and, and painful and ugly at times as well. Thank you very much for your questions. Um, very sadly, we've run out of time. There's so much more that we can talk about. Love is, after all, the consuming sort of thought of most of literature yeah. in some way. Um, please join me in thanking Mandy Len Catron. That was Clementine Ford talking with Mandy Lynn Catron at All About Women 2018, and they were discussing the state of modern love. We'll be back next week with more live recordings from the festival, so make sure you subscribe. Ideas at the House is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and in most good podcast apps. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.